I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a bi-weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if you like this podcast, come join us at a Digital Commerce Alliance event. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week, I'm talking with Ivan Schwartz and James Trockmay of Points for Purpose and Aaron Dauphiné of The Wise Marketer. Points for Purpose is a plug-and-play loyalty platform in cause-related marketing and a long-standing player in the Australian market. And Points for Purpose is launching in North America this summer with a launch event on June 1st in Manhattan at the Australian Trade Commission. Our conversation today is about growing customer lifetime value during challenging times. I'm tempted to just say weird times. Recent labor market reports reinforce the resilience of the economy, but still, nobody thinks everything is okay, and consumers certainly don't. So while we aren't in a sharp recession by any means, our conversation revolves today around what's different about the consumer in 2023 compared to, say, four or five years ago. What tools work better to engage those consumers than whatever we were doing in 2018 or 2019? What tools should brands or merchants put less focus on now? We're talking about customer lifetime value. So what's the best step merchants can take now to really extend the lifetime of that customer relationship? And what patterns in points redemption are indicators of longer term CLV? We're going to pick up all of those questions and a bunch more after this word from our sponsor, Pentadata. Commerce Code is sponsored by Pentadata the all-in-one financial data API. Whether it is bank account data, credit card transaction data, or credit reports and credit scores, Pentadata has it all in one simple and easy-to-use API. With coverage of over 6,000 banks, over 200 million credit files, and 60 million merchants, you can get all the data you need for your apps at pentadatainc.com. Well, I am very pleased to welcome three guests to this transnational episode of Commerce Code. We are talking about growing customer lifetime value in challenging times with Ivan Schwartz and James Trockmay of Points for Purpose and Aaron Dauphiné of The Wise Marketer. Really interested in a great conversation that we're having here and want to just start off by inviting each of our three guests on Commerce Code tonight to uh, introduce themselves, kind of just explain maybe briefly how they're connected to this topic, which is, you know, as I've said, growing customer lifetime value in in challenging times. And then we're going to dive in. Aaron, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, great. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate you having me on the episode. So I lead the marketing and business development teams for the Wise Marketer Group. We're a customer engagement and loyalty marketing, media and education company. I've been operating in this sector since the late 90s at a number of marketing services firms for the past, uh, I guess that's 25-ish years. And our business is actually made of two parts. So Our first is our media property, which is the brand, The Wise Marketer, which is the global source for unbiased customer loyalty news, research, and insights into the customer engagement and loyalty rewards industry. So this brand is about 30 years old, heritage out of the UK. And we purchased the business about five years ago, and it now includes thewisemarketer.com, which is our primary media publication. We also develop content and distribute it for our key partners, articles and webinars, things like that. It's simplest form, but then more complex research papers as well. And then we also curate discussions that are around thought leadership in this topic area at propriety events, both that we operate as well as do so for our partners. 
Um, we are also a leader for the global loyalty education in this sector through the Loyalty Academy. And it's really the only source that marketers have to earn their certified loyalty marketing professional CLMP designation around the globe. And we have about 600 CLMPs that we currently have earned their designation credentials, either through in-house workshops or through public workshops that we've hosted around the world or through our online demand courses. So I feel like that pretty much covers why I'm connected to this conversation as this me. Great. And you're, you're joining us uh, from Toronto, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I'm up here in Canada. And then my partners are in the United States, as well as we have a, another partner that's in New Zealand. So we're uh, transcontinental as well. Perfect. All right. So James, I think you're coming to us from Chicago, although maybe more typically in Ohio when you're not engaged in international adventures. If you could do a brief introduction as well. Sure. So my name is James Trockney. I'm an economist and political scientist by training who stumbled on information technology and banking in the late 80s and early 90s and completely changed his life and been involved in development banking, export financing, loan syndications, and also a lot of financial inclusion projects with the development banks uh, early on in my career. I moved into the technology space, worked at a company called Diebold, now Diebold Next Door, for 16 years before being poached by Citigroup as their strategy person for the uh, global retail bank, AT channel. And I worked there a lot on client experience, user experience, and the rapprochement between the mobile channel and the ATM channel as, as banks are looking to be more and more digital, but realize there's still a physical dimension to banking. All right. Well, look, that's a huge amount of expertise from the first two. And then Ivan would love to get your connection to the topic as well. And then momentarily after that, I also want to talk a little bit about uh, points for purpose, but introduce yourself to start. I'm one of the founders of a business based here in Sydney called Points for Purpose. We're a loyalty platform that gives back, a platform that enables really wide choice for members. It's a white label solution, a plug and play solution for businesses to take on and engage to typically re-energize their existing programs that may be flatlining or alternatively to start from scratch. But our, our key point of difference, our tagline, Dan, is get more, give more. So we're all about enabling choice, using card linking as a base element of our platform, which is really what took us to card links and DCA, and really engaging with that which is important to the member, aligning the business's purpose with that of the customer and doing it very seamlessly in a way that neither the customer nor the participating business need to change the way in which they operate. That's a, a pretty significant breakthrough that wasn't available in the marketplace not that long ago. And we kind of figured sitting on the other side of the world that this proposition was too small for Australia. We wanted to be able to open this up to the US and that's what's kind of brought us back to DCA and to be engaged and working with folks like Aaron and the Wise Marketer and of course James on the financial services side. And I think it's very timely with what's going on in the world. It starts, you know, there's a, a fellow in Australia called Adam Posner, who's a loyalty consultant, and he talks about joyalty, the joy of loyalty. And I'm pretty sure that that is front and center to what we are talking about in really just democratizing loyalty in a way that it means something to your existing customer. Yeah, I was going to say the timing of this has to have been, to some extent, I'm assuming, just a function of, well, you know, there was a little while there, uh, went on for quite a while, when, when you couldn't come across the Pacific, you know, everything was kind of shut down. And so 
now you're you're moving with pace to come into the American market. Is there something about the U.S. that's as opposed to going into Europe or as opposed to going somewhere else next? How did you decide to come here? You know, there's a very overused term called disruptive. You know, I was told by a fairly senior American recently that Americans don't do coalitions. Well, we're here to challenge that. We're talking about we as opposed to me, something that might be foreign for a lot of Americans with, with no disrespect. We're talking about really growing your bottom line by doing good. And, you know, there's a whole lot of extremes. And maybe the time is right. The tougher the conditions, Dan, the more difficult people are finding things, perhaps the greater the relevance for points for purpose. That's a good transition to where I wanted to start, which is we're talking about CLV during challenging times. And so I want to get to that. I can't resist, though, when your comment about Americans and coalitions was, wasn't it the Churchill quote who said that, you know, Americans will always do the right thing after every other option has been exhausted. And so uh, the in uh, uh, coalitions, right, it's been known to happen. We'll get there eventually. We wanted to talk about the challenging times piece just to kind of start off. And so let me just pose the, the question this way. How are things different now than they were, say, five years ago, which is, I mean, when you just imagine five years ago, it's, it's just an eon, given everything that's taken place. But you know, with respect to this in particular, right, are consumers behaving differently? Do they or will they behave differently with points? I have conversations every day with people in digital commerce. And you know, I, I have the sense from some organizations, huge merchants, whatever, that, that say, yeah, we see different behavior here now than we used to see. But I'd love to get it from your guys' perspective. Maybe Aaron and Ivan get, get a, a thought from the two of you on how's the world different in 23 as opposed to, say, 19 or 18? For one thing, I think we all got flipped, turned upside down, uh, you know, from the pandemic. And I like to use a double negative to suggest that no one was unaffected by the pandemic and, and the wake that it's created, right? I think that the, this has created a consumer mindset that kind of has four components to it, if I think about it. So the first is that there are certainly higher expectations around experience and service. Consumers are making very concerted decisions about the brands that they interact with and why. And what I mean by this is that there needs to be reciprocal benefit now. Second is around they're more economically savvy, or at least they're cost cognizant at a minimum. You know, in times of economic downturn, we know that consumers typically become much more cost savvy. They utilize loyalty currencies as a means to offset hard cash currency expenditures. And, you know, I've come across very few reports or, or even through my own conversations that would suggest that most people are returning to good time spending behavior, you know. But in fact, rather what they've taken stock of is that how can they be prepared for something to happen unexpectedly again and to be much more financially prudent. The third is really around this idea of adopting and normalizing digital interactions as a means of purchasing some products and services. I mean, even in services, think of going to your therapist or your doctor's appointments. They're now online. They're not in person. That's a dramatic shift. But by and large, even though this digitization has become ingrained and in, in a part of the way in which we transact, they're still searching and desiring you know, these expected human interactions within these digitized environments. And they want them to emulate or be exactly near to the firsthand experiences that they have in person. The fourth thing that I look at is really around, they are increasingly more purposeful led or cause related, you know, and this isn't multi-generational, albeit, you know, perhaps <laughs> I'd say five years ago, the ideology of this was in a younger consumer. But what we do see, and, and there is research that supports this, that across the pandemic, we all had to take a hard look at, you know, what's truly important to me. And so whether that's time, money, family and friends, the community we're involved in, you know, this definition of wealth has shifted to a broader set of things. And by virtue of that, it's impact on consumer purchases decisions and, you know, the degree to which we look beyond just themselves and their own needs and wants has, has really become a bit of a mainstay. 
There's a point you raised, and Ivan, maybe you can touch up on that because you and I discussed this, but the point you raised about people, you know, the, the whole effect, social, sociological effect, let's call it that, of, of COVID-19, where people were involuntarily isolated and where even digital communication was not enough. People wanted to reach out to the community. So this aspect of community is also becoming really much more important as people are looking closer to where they live, where they work, where they play, as opposed to the bigger world because they're trying to recreate this post-pandemic sense of, wow, I missed out on a lot of stuff in my community. If we talk about the millennial sector within the marketplace, you know, this is the Google generation. They are very discerning. They are very unforgiving. The expectation really is about personalization is where it starts. There are four of us on this call. I can absolutely assure you that there would be four different causes that we would we would be passionate about. We've just uploaded the total IRS NGO database, 1.8 million charities onto p4p.com. And, you know, the days of a well-intended director going to their, his or her board and saying, we are going to support XYZ charity, just by definition, alienates every other person, either as employees or customers that support another charity. So how about saying to either your employees or your customers, what are you passionate about? And every time you do business with me, I will support that which is important to you. Well, you're going to have to screw that relationship up pretty damn bad to lose me. You know, I just talk from my personal experience. I have three kids, one of whom has a developmental disability. I'm involved with a charity called Supported Living Network. You agree to support Supported Living Network and you've got me for life. So when we talk about CLV, just open up that conversation. To James's point, with the digital tools we have at our disposal, Dan, there is no excuse for one-on-one, -on -one, even, dare I say it, within the NGO sector. Why not talk about impact? Why not actually let someone who you are supporting get an understanding of the impact of your support and close that loop? This is some kind of marketing heresy, but I've always had the view for a long time that at the end of the day, right, to say the obvious, everybody's a segment of one. And segmentation as, a, as an approach is something that we do because of limitations of data and limitations of you know, practicalities. And with, with the advent of data sets being more available and then AI potentially turbocharging our ability to analyze things, it seems like um, segmentation as an, as an approach doesn't, doesn't necessarily have the same future as it's had. All of that is maybe a wind up to asking what tools should brands merchants put less time energy into you know what have we what are we kept doing there's always a lag right so what have we kept doing that doesn't really make sense or return effort energy maybe james you can start with this one if you have a, an opinion yeah. on that i'd be curious i'll quote somebody from a bank who's working at a bank right now so i won't name him and i won't name the bank but not enough for a night not enough for a flight and he's working mostly with airline loyalty stuff, as you might have guessed, and the hospitality industry. And he's saying that a lot of these programs lure the customers with, you know, if you purchase so much, you get so many points towards the flight. And then they change the rules of the game on the flights and the blackout dates. And they say there are no blackout dates, but then the program is not working, et cetera. So there's a lot of, of frustration. So it's, it's an operational efficiency stuff is, are we going after the same thing? And, or are we just trying to take a wild guess as to what our customers want instead of asking them what they want? 
And so that's the soul searching that's taking place. And this is where you started to see more card programs allowing for cash rewards. But I think that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of artificial intelligence maybe can be helpful. But at the end of the day, I think we need to also trust people's intelligence to determine what it is they want to support and what causes they like. So I can see how the technology, the algorithms, AI can be helpful in terms of uh, speeding up the process of making that selection. But ultimately, we have to rely on the consumer to either opt in, opt out, and make their own choices. And I think that's what's lacking in a lot of the card programs today in the United States. Do we run the risk of of having too much choice? I mean, how much uh, is that a concern? Like, what, what's the what's the take on that? What we have found here in Oz is that if you give people too much choice, they make none. That's kind of the sobering reality. So when I say democratize, just be conscious of, of that fact. So what we typically do is we go to an organization, we do a scoping exercise, we understand where they are positioned. There was a, a vodka company that was mentioned uh, the other day. Well, how about looking at the causes and I mean causes in both sense of the word, of excessive alcohol. And how about taking that head on, excuse the pun, and how about actually picking three as featured causes, but then coming back to the democratization comment, having a little asterisk that says, these are three causes that align with our value structure. But if you wish to support, again, a, a, a cause that you are passionate about, you still have the right to do that. So that balance between featured and choice is something that we've actually done quite a lot of work on and that we bring to the table as we come into the US. And I'm going to say from a user experience, it's nothing new because people are already doing that with a lot of online services, suggested features in Netflix or Amazon Prime Video, right? But at yeah. the end of the day, people make the choice. Yeah, I think two things I'll comment on. One is I do believe that by having too much choice, you know, you can stifle the consumer in terms of just understanding, you know, how best to get the value out of the particular product or service that you're offering. And particularly when it comes to credit cards, we have a product up here in Canada that actually rose to the top in terms of rankings by the virtue of the fact that people could make adjustments and changes throughout the course of the year to 11 different category spends to earn their multiplier. That worked well, but I, I'm going to guarantee you donuts to dollars if we were able to get to the data in behind there and take a look at the number of categories that were actually utilized and the number that were switched to, I'm going to guess very likely less than three. And that's because people like their comfort zones. They just, they like the idea of choice, but they they still like their comfort zones. That, so that's, that's kind of the, the first comment I'll make. The second is around the real, real driver, if you will, uh, in terms of being able to truly understand what a consumer needs is you need to ask them. And so my researcher side of me comes out and cringes a little bit at what Ivan's saying, but, he, but he's on point for this particular example. You know, the research question, we don't want to have a bunch of stated options and then an other bucket because now we've got to go and code and figure all that out. But in this particular instance, the transparency and the genuineness of the brand comes out and says, hey, here's what we're about in terms of purpose giving. This is this is for us. This is where we're at. But if you're not here at these three, as using that particular example, you know, we're still with you. We still want to help you. And we want to know about that. And so by asking the individual about what it is that they care about most outside of it and removing the brand orientation to being more the member or the customer oriented type of view, I think is the real path forward because it gets to this type of reciprocal balanced relationship that we talk about in loyalty, where it's I'm giving as much to you as you're giving as much to me. And so I feel like I'm being as loyal to you as you're being loyal to me. 
And I think that's where AI can be most useful is by cutting all the dead wood and getting to the point of what the program owner is trying to communicate and delineating based on the AI results what are those other options that we need to offer? Because, you know, you could have a, an extended menu, but it's enough choice, not too many choices, but it have, they have to be the, the right choices as opposed to something esoteric that's not going to get any pickup at all. So even though it may be all three, you may find most people use two or three, and many of those categories are the same. I've seen this in the United States with lately gasoline <laughs> points, cash back on, on fuel purchases, but people also doing cash back on other categories. And so people typically try to, as Aaron was pointing to, to relate it to something that's more meaningful to them in a day-to-day life. And so they're going to they're gravitate naturally towards those options that are more appealing to them on an individual level. No, and I agree. And just to pick up on that a little bit more about, you know, we talked about engagement tools that aren't working, you know, and then we hop into this choice conversation, you know, some of the some of the way in which brands can actually help consumers make better choices about the purchase decisions actually come from some good, strong digital tools and innovations that have the human component ingrained into them, which I alluded to earlier in the conversation. Now, you know, if I think about it, and it's different for every sector, right? A retail is different than air, uh, retail and airline are kind of similar, but that's different than other sectors as well, too, such as commodities, grocery, and 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 maybe perhaps drugstore uh, and gasoline. But the point being, if you think about health and beauty or even airline, they rely heavily on these customizable experiences that really start to drive the needle. And what they're doing is enabling the ability for their associates through a digitized platform, you know, a, a tablet or a smart device to be able to truly understand their customer and help them with the different types of interactions that they're having. So, you know, I think that, and we call it clientele link. So I think, you know, clientele is much more effective now than it was five years ago, pre-pandemic. People now expect it's almost when I go in, you you have a, a me on your files of loyalty member, your associates better know about me. So if you're a brand that's not enabling your, your frontline staff to have the answers, to know that I am at a certain level and status uh, with you and, and what my value is to your organization, as soon as I walk in the door, you're going to be a bit behind the game. And so, you know, uh, we've really upped the game. And so I think that's working, uh, number one, in health and beauty, for sure, as a sector and other specialty retail categories, and also airlines. I've seen it work really and well. And I'm going to tell you, banking. There's nothing that upsets a customer more than walking into a branch location and not being recognized. And we've had constant, when I was at City, we got did uh, focus groups, et cetera. And, uh, and this is what, uh, uh, what uh, came, came through is people want to know what kind of depth and breadth of relationship uh, uh, they have with the bank. And they want the bank to also know it so that when they uh, come and interact with the bank, the bank is not just looking at that little one line of business segment because they're applying for a car loan, but really taking a, a look at the total relationship and wallet share they have with that customer. And so there's 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 been a lot of progress in that field, but there's still more work to be done in that respect. I remember one of our early conversations, again, with a senior loyalty person who will hopefully be part of our team shortly, ex-MasterCard, been there for upwards of 10 years, knew about card linking, but really saw this at the behest of the banks. So when we talk about democratization, what we're actually saying now, Dan, is that a chain of quick service restaurants can actually now get access via card linking to the capability that was only until very recently in the hands and the control of a very few significant organizations. So the democratization is not just a function of choice for the consumer, but the enablement for mid-tier retailers 
who can now play at the same level as the big league with the same capability to run cashback and cause and engagement and, frankly, AI. All of these tools are now available to enable the little guy to get back up off the floor in these challenging times and to actually really compete. I'm just such an advocate of card linking. It is such a critical element of our solution because without that enablement, I'd suggest the cause, the purpose element of points for purpose would be significantly more challenging. So we have that now and I think we can impact. I think we can really take it to small town North America and actually engagement in a way that perhaps was mission impossible not that long ago. It's a new ball game, Dan. Yeah. No, I was having a conversation with a, a fintech, a London-based fintech today. We, we went down this path and we're kind of imagining, uh, we got to the place of me saying, you know, it might be difficult to explain to our grandkids, like, the scale and size of the organizations that were in financial services. So, like, how big banks had to be or were. Because you can imagine a world where what you've called democratization and, and other tech developments really lead to a much more even playing field. And perhaps it's just not dominated by, you know, enormous organizations because maybe you don't have to have that scale in order to be effective, um, at least in some of the things that we're talking about here. I want to pivot to I want um, a, a thing that, that you put me on to, Ivan. Uh, you'd sent me a McKinsey report from a while ago, but I thought it was a nice passage in here that was talking about kind of maintaining customer engagement and and analyzing different aspects of it. And so let me just read off a little snippet and I want to kind of get reactions from uh, from you guys. So it says a typical active loyalty program member spends 10% more than someone who's enrolled but not active, but Redeemer members are spending 25% more than enrolled but inactive members. Currency or point redemption accelerates this virtuous loyalty loop as a customer achieves the reward or benefit and mobilizes to accrue more. And the argument basically in the, you, you mentioned breakage before, the, the piece, the analysis there was kind of about that and about, hey, what can we do to take and turn more of our program members into Redeemers? And, you know, that's not the only aspect, obviously, of customer engagement, but but wanted to just get a reaction, I guess, to the idea that some organizations either are resistant to or haven't gotten around to or are otherwise just not doing what they need to do in order to activate the members and get engagement. And so, I don't know, Aaron, maybe you can start with that. And Ivan, I'd love to hear from you kind of about that, too. This might be maybe controversial, but I'll, I'll go this way anyway. So I don't really see resistance on taking steps towards increasing redemptions so much as I, I more often see brands that uh, just really don't understand even what their members want from them. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's more ignorance than resistance, quite frankly. And, you know, to quote one of my fave actors, Vince Vaughn, you know, he had it right with whatever my baby wants, my baby gets, uh, because he knew, once he knew, he took action. He knew what the individual wanted. And so... You know, having been in this industry for you know a long time, I know that there's a common point of view out there that suggests that the customer redeems is by virtue of that they're a very loyal consumer. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Certainly, you know, 20 plus years ago, this may have been the case, but I think that the psychology of redemption is now much more complex than that. And you know, we can't necessarily make this inference as, as readily. So Yes, there are insights that indicate that satisfaction or uh, member engagement or even a stated loyalty to program does increase as a, as a member gets closer to their target of redemption. We know that's true. I've seen studies in that. In fact, it's classic, I think it's goal gradient theory by Hall who proposed this idea. And uh, real quickly, for those who, who aren't familiar with it, if you're a 1500 meter runner and you're going at a steady pace for the majority of the race, and by all intensive means up for that last lap, you should be exhausted, right? But you enter that last lap 
And as you, you enter into it, you start running faster and you increase your effort and you put more into it and you actually speed up and you have better performance and knowing because you have only so much further before you cross that line. That's the construct behind goal gradient theory. And this applies to reward redemptions. We see this being true. So as an individual who's stated with the brand what they want to get as a redemption, so there's a clear understanding between the two about where they're going, as they get closer and closer, the marker or the driver, satisfaction, member engagement, whatever it is, starts to increase and performance starts to improve as you get closer and closer to that redemption amount that you're about to about to make. And in fact, when the redemption occurs, there's a slight lift and this feeling of, of joy occurs. Uh, joyalty, right? I think that's what uh, Posner had said <laughs> earlier right. that, that Ivan had talked about. And so that feels good. And so we think, hooray, they're a loyal customer. Yes, but only for a little bit of it. Not for yeah, very the, the, and the anticipation of gratification wears off pretty fast. Yes. That's exactly right. There's studies that showcase, I, I used to work at Bond Brand Loyalty and headed up the Loyalty Report. There's studies that specifically showcase that the honeymoon is over very quickly and in fact falls mm-hmm. off. So that once a person redeems, doesn't necessarily makes them joyful and, and feel loyal for that moment, but it doesn't carry forward. You have to do more. And so this is where I see the inaction and the brands not being able to understand and know that they then need to take steps to making sure that this individual still feels loved because they might be at a point where they're like we talked about earlier close to you know their earned velocity just isn't enough in the program and they're just scraping by and they just got enough and so they're draining the bank well that's not a little behavior that's someone who's just you know cherry picking to get out of the program and 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 get what they can but that's also your fault because you didn't really put anything of value into the program for them or allow them to earn to get faster quicker to that particular reward so there's you you kind of have to look at yourself there and then the second is maybe perhaps they are truly you know embedded with you and they are going towards that goal and they received it but then there's this question of like, well, what next? And so you don't want to create a moment where they potentially could think about a triding out. You, in fact, want to wrap your arms around them and say, hey, what's your next goal? What would you like to do with us next? Where do you want to go? Set that goal again and help them get there faster, quicker, and and early up that points balance right away. Give them a reward of some sort. Give them an offer structure that fills the piggy bank up a bit more, gets them on their way and going. It's like it's like your grandfather giving you twenty bucks as you left at the door when you left at the end of summer vacation, right? It's it's some some little gift that's on your way to being a good boy for when you come back next summer. Can I toss in that in you know just connecting some dots here? If you're redeeming in order to get a you know a, a flight or a product or whatever a flat screen TV, then that's your own journey. But if you're redeeming to a charity or you're redeeming to a right a nonprofit of some kind, that can become a group activity, right? Where there are goals and they want to do certain things. They want to build a project. They want to do a thing. And that you're part of that with a group of so people, right? And so that brings you together because that's got to be a part of the, the psychology here. Of course it is. Of course it is. I mean, just to pick up on Aaron's point, Every redemption is an opportunity to cross-sell and upsell. If it's if it's an end game of itself, and I think this is your point, Aaron, what's the point of doing it? It's an opportunity to re-engage. And that's really where the lifetime bit, Dan, of CLV, that central piece, is so critical. Because there's lots of stats, McKenzie's, MasterCard, there are a whole lot of reports. That is an opportunity to re-engage. Without sounding ridiculously expedient, an opportunity to open up a cause is an opportunity to engage. You know, early days points for purpose, and I haven't shared this with you, Aaron or James. We sat down with an expert in Australia who asked this question. He said, why would I give a dollar to a thousand charities when I could give a thousand dollars to one? And I have to confess, I never had the answer at the time, but I do now. Because if you give one dollar to someone who's passionate about their cause, they will tell a hundred people. And that's how $1,000 becomes $10,000. And that's viral marketing at its best. 
Let's let's call it for what it is, purpose to profit. You know, if I go back to my community at Supported Living Network and tell my community that the local pharmacy down the road is open to supporting my cause, and every time you shop there, just by shopping there, you're supporting our cause, that's word of mouth marketing, which is, I think you would agree, Aaron, the most powerful one of the lot. Yeah, it's one of those tools that just hasn't gone out of vogue. It's still around. Yeah. You know, our ability to make sure that we know who our advocates are and what they're saying about us and who they're saying it to is actually even more critical now, right? So it kind of comes back to what James said before. You know, well-intentioned people sitting on boards need to kind of leave their egos at the door and say, let's let our employees or our customers choose. And whatever experience you've had in life, whether it's health-related or otherwise, don't impose that. Let your consumer choose. I've killed multi-million dollar projects because customer feedback was Absolutely. You know, we talk, James, we talk about something called ROD, return on donation, as opposed to ROI. How can you actually do this smartly so that you can really engage with that which is important? Another example from the School of Hard Knocks, a buddy of mine, senior guy in an investment bank, went to his staff and said, We'll back you dollar for dollar. And our charity is in Australia. It's called Starlight Foundation, which is like Make-A-Wish in the US. He said to me, we didn't get take-up. I said to him, what's the average age of your staff? Early 20s. Do they have kids? No, they don't. You've picked the wrong cause. Why didn't you say to them, you choose and we'll back you dollar for dollar? He said, I, I said to him, I'm absolutely no doubt you would have had every one of them on board. And, and that's at the root, Dan, of what we're trying to bring to the table. Choice. My kind of wrapping question here was going to be, you introduced this, as I've phrased it, kind of putting the L in CLV. So how do you how do you get to the customer lifetime value? And with that, you know, I think there's a the idea now that getting to people's values and getting to them in a tailored way or giving them informed choice, right, in a way that doesn't overwhelm is the right path. And so I wonder, and I'd love to get just a quick response from each of you, what do you think this space looks like in five years? Yeah, I can hop in on the market side. So when I was at Bond, uh, you know, with the Lotus Report, one of the things we looked at early in the pandemic was still this idea of we to me. We saw a lot of that transition because people were just looking for redemptions that said, well, how do I use my points and what can I do? Plus, as I said earlier, people were taking a harder look at themselves and going like, what's important in life, you know, and then it's actually community and helping others and to rise up as opposed to just being individualistic. And so the ability to transfer your points and, and help people out was something that happened. And, and I'm here to tell you that it's not a fat. You know, this new criterion for purposeful decisions and, and cause-related elements is, is a part of the consumer purchase decisions now. For some, it plays more of a predominant role, obviously, but it's there for everybody. And in fact, you know, we saw values-based segmentation in one of the reports that we did that looked at consumers, and there was kind of two segments that popped out for us around this values-based decision-making. One was, of course, what you would expect, you know, kind of a young urban professional millennial with a family, you know, the very values-oriented, they have affluent, so they have the ability, the means to be, be able to make these choices a little bit more like that's a key component is I can be much more values oriented when I have affluence and I'm not just scraping at you know my base needs on an everyday basis but the other was actually an older more loyalty savvy consumer you know tended around baby boomers and and into the next upper generation as well too you know they cared about their communities that was the difference is it was about a community orientation and connections which is very important as you, as you get older and so you know not to say that they're hippies but hippie like in terms of the mindset of a collective and so you know they were 
doing this well before the millennials were. The only difference is that is I think that the younger generation just made it cool and gave it gave it critical mass and brought us to attention to say, hey, this is important. And back to the construct of, you know, how do you find wealth? Well, wealth is not only just something that happens to me, it's something that happens to me and my communities, and my family and friends and the people around me now. What I'm seeing right now is a lot of banks are exploring, trying to find a path forward. So I don't know what it will be five years from now, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be very different from what it is today because the technology is leveling the playing field. So smaller community banks, credit unions, neobanks, etc., that also represent a sizable part of the market will have access to technology and tools that allow them to compete with the big boys on the street, the cities, the B of A's, the Chases, the Royal Bank of Canada. But the reality is in the United States, you know, between credit unions and banks, it's somewhere around 10, 12,000 financial institutions And not everybody banks at the big banks. So coming back to this whole thing about community, people who are looking closer to where they live, where they shop and where they work, and looking at credit unions and community banks as alternatives to the traditional big banks. So I think that that's where we're going to see some shifts is that service providers and smaller financial institutions will be able to deploy and implement these technologies and compete toe-to-toe with what the bigger loyalty programs are today. And so that's going to give the banks a run for their money. I'm largely going to repeat what Aaron and, and James have just said. I think, I mean, you mentioned the credit union fraternity, James, that's a key target for us. One in two financial institutions in the U.S. is a credit union. I think there's, what's the figure? Upwards of 5,000, James, somewhere around about? Give or take 5,000 credit unions, 6,000 credit unions, and some pretty big ones. If you look at, you know, like like the Pentagon Federal Credit Union, Navy Federal Credit Union, you're talking millions and millions of members. But look, at at the end of the day, this has been a constant theme of our conversation, I think, today, Dan. Do you feel as an individual member of a loyalty program that the loyalty program is talking to you? Do you feel it's it's one-to-many or do you feel it's one-to-one? And I think in five years' time, there will be massive rationalization. I'd be very doubtful, James, whether there'd be as many credit unions in 2028 as there are today. And I think the survival strategy is really about understanding CLV, about really being able to talk to me as an individual. And, you know, the Google generation today, our millennials, That's where they start. That's not where they end. That's what their base expectation is. So in five years' time, when they're all a little bit older, maybe a kid or two, at the end of the day, is the program talking to me as an individual? Does it understand me? Does it talk to me? Does it give me what I want? And there really is, without sounding repetitious, the stuck record, there really is no excuse to that right now. And engagement, of course, with what's going on in the world, Aaron was talking about we versus me. If the very discerning millennial genuinely feels that it is we, and it's a big call that, a really big call in in the world of marketing, if, if he or she genuinely feels it's a we rather than me, then you're a stayer, you're a winner. You're going to be there in five years. If there's doubt about that, maybe not. I think that's a that's a pretty good place to wrap it. This has been a terrific conversation. Thank you, gentlemen, for uh, both uh, getting up a little bit early, maybe, Ivan, and staying up a little bit late uh, on the other side to record this episode of Commerce Code. And we look forward to, I look forward to meeting you all in person. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. All the best. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score 
to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. We got into this a little bit in the conversation, but I'm still thinking about it. There's a McKinsey report from a few years ago. It says that a typical active loyalty program member spends about 10% more than someone who's enrolled but isn't active. And then a member that redeems points spends about 25% more than an inactive member. So currency or point redemption accelerates that virtuous loyalty loop that we're looking for as the customer achieves the reward or the benefit and then mobilizes to accrue more rewards. But the report goes on to say that there's a lot of misunderstanding and a kind of a resistance among executives to taking the steps that are needed to increase points redemptions among our consumers. Now, redemptions impose a cost, of course, and it's sort of a matter of confidence in the program's overall efficacy as to whether leaders have the confidence to really make a program fully effective. We've seen through DCA member companies that with at the economic pressure right now, there's really a role for building more customer engagement with innovative redemption options. And some of our members are telling us that they see that their customers are redeeming for different kinds of offers now than a few years ago and arguably are more motivated because they're reaching out to redeem for things that are kind of more fundamental, they're less discretionary. So the most effective programs, we think, are doubling down on pushing their value proposition to consumers and then really delivering on it and ensuring that consumers get that benefit. Now, one of the ways to deliver value in the most certain way, of course, is to make points more cash-like so they can be redeemed with fewer limitations. That's sort of the opposite of the oldest school loyalty programs, which generally issued rewards in a currency akin to those Chuck E. Cheese tokens, right? It was a totally closed system. So Chuck E. Cheese tokens have been collected and studied. There were many different issues and years and whatever. There's a whole website devoted to it, of course. But as a currency, they really only worked in one place, or at least it was a chain of places. Now, rewards that can only be used in a narrow space like that are simply just not as valuable And that makes them less potent in terms of driving the consumer behavior and the loyalty that we're looking for. So, of course, now a lot of consumer rewards are redeemable outside of the original brand, the original issuer. And yet there's still a reticence to really set points free so that consumers can use them however they please for a variety of reasons. Like what if it drives up the cost of the program? What if it doesn't increase loyalty or purchase behavior to our program or our brand or at least not in proportion to the access cost? You know, all due respect to Sting, if we love points programs, really, should we set them free? So at DCA, you know, we think there's a series of questions that leaders in this space should be asking as they think about this. And here are a few. How motivated are our customers by redeeming within our program? How much breakage do we see, which is kind of a measure of that? So it's where consumers abandon points or disengage from the program. Would it help if they could make use of their points elsewhere? And would it make them more motivated to continue to earn points in our program? What would our best customers want to be able to spend their rewards on, if not on the things that we make it possible for them to redeem for? And then what redemption options could be brand reinforcing for us? So you don't have to turn stuff into a fully fungible cash-like thing. Maybe you can steer towards brand reinforcing redemption options. And then perhaps to get a better sense of the answer to those questions, is there a way that we can pilot something, just an expanded set of points redemption options with maybe a subset of our best customers? 
These are all important questions as we continue to navigate some choppy waters. Thanks for listening to Commerce Code. We'll be with you again in a couple weeks. Commerce Code is a bi-weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practice sharing. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week.